Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to Romance at a Glance, Authors at a Glance. I'm your host, Bridget, and today I have a very exciting author interview with Mimi Matthews. She is a historical romance author, and her latest book, The Bell of Belgrave Square, came out in October, and I read books one and two. This is book two. They are standalone romance novels. Happily Ever After is guaranteed. Uh, you don't have to read them in order, but they do feature the same group of four friends. This one is a marriage of convenience between an heiress who's looking to escape her sort of surroundings in London and a reclusive stranger and she chooses him and it's a little bit of Beauty and the Beast vibes. I will say there's a library and I absolutely adored the book. So if you're a historical romance fan, definitely make sure you check this one out. We will drop links in the description. If you're looking for some bookish merch for yourself or others this holiday season, make sure you head to our website or click some links in our bio. Shawnee made this beautiful journal. If you're into journaling, we have a coloring book that has like all these amazing chibis of all sorts of different pairings and seasons and fun activities and parties and it's wonderful uh, my kid is in there with her little backpack and it's the cutest thing of all time uh, appropriate for all ages adults children whatever you want to do and also we have some very cute bookish stickers so if you're in the mood for some holiday merch uh, click the link in the bio or down below whatever podcasting app or website you're watching on or you can head to our website romanceatglance.com and now, without further ado, Mimi Matthews. Oh, and patrons, make sure you check out Patreon because me and Mimi had so much fun. There are a whole bunch of little tidbits of our behind the scenes for you all to listen to at patreon.com forward slash romance at a glance. Let's get this shit popping. Romance at a glance. Uh huh. Romance at a glance. What you say Romance at a glance. Go ahead, girl. It's so, are you still a lawyer or practicing lawyer or are you writing full-time now? I write full-time. I keep my law license current, which sometimes I wonder, well, it's a little bit tedious because like I just got my notice for my um, continuing, we had do MCLEs, which are continuing education. So about every three years you, you have to report, I don't know how much it is now, maybe like 23 units that you took for continuing education of the bar. And because I'm not practicing anymore, I don't take them throughout. And so I have to just like cram for a test at the end, take them all in. And I always think, oh God, this is going to be like a week and I don't have a week to spare. And then I think maybe it's time to go inactive on my license. But then I always am just hesitant because I work so hard to be a lawyer and I'm just hesitant to let it go. But yeah, I broke my neck not long after I passed the bar. And oh, wow. Yeah. And well, I had had a, several neck surgeries from a car accident, a bad car accident. And the la- the second to the last really big surgery was a disfusion and they use donor bone to sort of rebuild it. And the idea is that the donor bone fuses with your vertebrae and makes a solid fusion, which mine did. It was solid. They tested it a year passed and that's what broke. It just snapped in half. And that was debilitate like incredibly debilitating and also incredibly depressing life-altering injury um which is how i came back to writing because i was sort of just bed bound at the time i had to have the big surgery i mean the all the surgeries have been big but this one was like the huge one they had to go in through the back of my neck um to repair and they put steel plates front and back and all this stuff and after that it was sort of like my whole life just sort of stopped and i didn't really know which way I was going to go forward, how I was going to get out of it. And I had always written before, but that's what sort of brought me back to writing. Um, And it's been a long road and 
I can't say that I envision going back to practicing full time because I really love writing, but um, it, it's such a part of my identity that I just would be so, so sad to officially not, you know, have my life, just having my license current all the time just makes me feel like I'm still involved in some way. When you were writing and or like coming back to writing, did you, was historical kind of the spot that you always liked to venture? Were you a reader of historicals first? Um, I've, yeah, his, well, I read pretty much everything. I don't discriminate. I mean, I guess you could say like, I'm not big on Westerns generally, or like there's like <laughs> small niches where I'm just like, yeah, I mean, I'll read it because any author can make something great. Um, but yeah, I loved historicals. I read them growing up. Um, my mom had like a, a romance shelf and she had uh, Amanda Quick and Judith McNaught and Julie Garwood and um, Joanna Lindsay, that kind of stuff. And I was like, I read them all. I was really big into um, Amanda Quick. Oops, my cats are running amok. Sorry, if you hear stuff in the <laughs> background, it's because when they hear me talking, but they don't hear somebody talking in return, they think I'm talking to them. And so I have Siamese <laughs> cats. So they're like around knocking stuff down, doing stuff. <laughs> um, anyway, but I really liked Amanda Quick and Julie Garwood because they never had the, they generally did not have the big understanding mix up. <laughs> and I used to get so anxious in like the novels, like Whitney, my love, where it was a lot of misunderstandings and somebody believing somebody was bad when they weren't or, or mistaking who did what. And I would just get so anxious. And I loved the books where those sort of misunderstandings were resolved and the tension came from other things, you know, like they were solving a mystery together or something mm -hmm. um, just because I wanted you know, the sort of more soothing. But yeah, when I went back to writing, actually, I had written historicals in the past because I had an agent when I was young. I wrote books when I was young, uh, didn't sell. I wrote historicals in the past, but what brought me back to writing was actually a contemporary, really hot contemporary, was the first one I wrote um, and went back out on sub because my previous agent, Helen, she had passed away in 07. Um, so I had to go out on sub for a new agent. And I just sent out this really racy book, <laughs> which I think would shock a lot of my readers now, but it was, yeah, it was contemporary. And um, I just had to get it out of my system. It was just like a story that I had to get out of my system. And then the second one I wrote was historical. And then I was just so happy back in that genre. That's just all that I've done ever since. And it's sort of my happy place. I can't imagine going back to contemporary now, but I have, I have been there. I have written in contemporaries. I feel like writing in historicals would be so fun because you have a little bit more license to like play with things in a way that you wouldn't in a contemporary. Like if I read contemporary, I'm expecting consent. I'm expecting birth control. I'm expecting, you right. know, like it to feel like a, a real, the people to feel like a real person I might meet today. Right. Whereas, it, you know, historicals, you can have like eccentric people in a way that's maybe a little more difficult in a contemporary. Right. There is, however historically accurate you make it, there is a total element of fantasy to historical romance. I mean, you, it's not, it's never, even the people who say this is a historically accurate historical romance, they're, they never are. I mean, they're not as disgusting and filthy and, you know, 
there's yeah. better hygiene. There's people better have, people have nice teeth. Yeah, I was just going to say that there's better teeth, but you know, people don't smell bad. Um, so there's always an element of fantasy, no matter how um, on the ball you are with your research. And it just feels nice. And I think that one thing I really love about it as a reader and also being able to write it is that it is pure. It truly is pure escape because wh- whatever, um, year or you know however far in the past you've set your your historical because it is you're taking yourself out of the modern you know concerns you would have they can still be really relatable on an emotional level completely on emotional level but um it's sort of like i've read current romances and somebody mentions their student loan debt and i'm like oh god i don't need to be reminded of that i'm reading to escape the reality of that um, and in historicals, you don't have to worry about getting zinged with somebody mentioning, you know, they're sinking under a student loan debt figure and they name a number and you're like, that's nothing, man. Um, <laughs> which is a wake up call that you don't want when you're reading to reduce your stress. Um, which is one of the reasons I really love historicals. You don't have to worry about that. Um, you can still relate, but it is, um, it is fantasy and the fantasy can be just such a nice escape uh, when reality gets too stressful. Mm-hmm. I a hundred percent agree with you. We read one romance novel early on in our podcast and both of us were like, it's too many issues. It's too many social justice issues in one book. <laughs> like sometimes, yeah, sometimes many, you just too many things like yeah. the romance get lost in the wayside because of all these other things. Yeah. And totally. I like my romance to be like front and center. Yeah, I do too. I do too. And it's hard sometimes because when certain things come up in the story, you want the characters to deal with them in a way that um, is respectful and also that resonates with sort of your modern sensibilities because there's certain things in historicals that a hero could do that even though in the past, you know, that would be accurate are just unforgivable. I mean, if he's too much of a jerk, or a misogynist or has certain beliefs, even if it's Victorian or Regency or Georgian, you're just like, no, no, unforgivable. Um, But aside from that, um, yeah, it's nice to just have an escape from the modern stuff from like the current events of the day, I feel, because lately, especially the last several years, I mean, I don't know if people are wanting to read stories about pandemics or anything like that, but personally, I just want, have a break from it because it is so tense and stressful in real life um but yeah i love historicals for that reason they're they're absolutely my fave i was just talking to someone about this the other day and i was like i had been recommended to read a romance novel so in my mind romance novel happily ever after great right right feeling great about this and it ended on a cliffhanger and when i tell you like the rage that filled my soul oh my gosh it's like such a bait and switch yeah, I was like, no, like, I want to know that, you know, no matter, like, what happens during the Exactly. Book, it's that little safety that, net at the bottom. That's that promise. Yeah. yeah. And I feel like that is a promise that an author of a romance makes to a reader, like this, this unspoken promise that no matter what I put these characters through, it is going to be okay at the end. And you're going to have that happily ever after. 
that's why sometimes you see the debate of people saying not all romances have happily ever afters. It's like, um, no, they actually they do. It's it's a genre requirement. It doesn't mean you're not creative or thinking outside the box. That's just the requirement of the genre. And it's because of that promise mm -hmm. you make with the reader. Um, mm -hmm. And you know what? As a reader, I expect that like if an author of a romance um it feels like a trick. It's like you've been defrauded. <laughs> you get to the end and yeah. you're just like, yeah, I, it doesn't feel nice to be tricked, especially when you've paid money for a book. Yeah. And like, I, I'm fine with it if I just know in advance. So if you tell me like, oh, this is a romantic trilogy, I'm like, dope, I'm into it. Exactly. Oh, as long as you know. It's yeah. Fine. Yeah. It's, totally. it's just but, like have your expectations set. So your books are traditionally published. So like how much... Uh, input do you get to put into the way that your books are marketed talking about sort of people getting what they are being marketed well, I'm a I'm a hybrid so I have a bunch of indie books and then I have traditional and then I have nonfiction traditional too um for the the traditional I mean there's some parts I get an input in um like I get to see versions of the cover um, when it's drafted and, and sometimes they'll give me like three different versions and ask what, what I like best, which is really great. Or like, um, for the cover of the Bella Belgrave square, um, I got to see various different versions and chose which one I like best. And then I was able to give some input into, I think her, you know, her hair would not be this style. It should be like this. This is how I envision it. And could you do this different with the dress? And they did that, which was, which was great. Um, the series title originally for the Bells of London was the Four Horsewomen, which was my what I chose. <laughs> and, and it was my publisher who changed it to Bells of London, which I end up loving. But um, like for things like that, I mean, some of my more harebrained ideas, I, the team is like, no, we're going to go with this thing. And, <laughs> and I just defer to them because I feel like they, you know, they generally know best. Um, but yeah, it's it's collaborative in that way. Um if I have an idea that the rest of the team thinks is not great, it will definitely go with their option, <laughs> not mine. But uh, they do take my input into account. How do you, like as a reader, if you, okay, because I'm like looking at your covers right now, the Somerset stories, you have uh, photos of people. Um, and then for obviously like Bells of London, you have the more sort of illustrated stylized covers, right. like as a reader, what are the ones that you would like pick up off a shelf? First? I don't know. I mean, I thought of that growing up, they, the ones that I got used to reading so that I sort of gravitated toward, I don't think they even had pictures on the cover. I don't know if you remember any of seeing any of the classic Amanda Quicks, I think they were just like a color yeah. on the cover. It was like, yeah, a, they were, you know, a fan or something or a picture of a book or a treasure, a treasure chest. And yeah, then you would or open like a, or like a landscape sometimes. Exactly. Like yeah, exactly. Photo. There was, And then you would open them and then there would be like a picture of, you know, yeah. two people embrace. It was like a very arty, um, you know, showing them in different scenes, like the guy on the horse, the two of them embracing mm -hmm. and, you know, the woman with her dress half falling off. So, I don't know. At this point, you know, I gravitate a lot toward if the only the only thing that would influence me cover wise is if it was a bad cover, if it was mm -hmm. like one of those um, like obviously really bad, tacky, badly made covers that might put me off of a book unless a bunch of friends had recommended it. And then I'd still probably read it. So 
I'm not as heavily influenced by covers in a positive way, like that I have a favorite style, but definitely in a negative way. <laughs> if it's if it's some weird, you know, uh, sometimes smart bitches trashy books does cover snark, and they'll show these covers yeah. that are just like crazy. <laughs> but yeah. even then, sometimes I guess those attract you sometimes because they're just so weird. Yeah. Just like this is really what is this book about exactly, exactly. Yeah. So. So I don't know. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm loving the illustrated covers right now just because they feel so fun. I always laugh because I'm like, they're fun. But like as a romance reader, like they could hide any level of spice. <laughs> so it's like, <laughs> I'm like, what am I getting into? Am, am I in like rom-com land or am right. I going how, into the dark? How like sweet <laughs> is this or is this like incredibly mm-hmm. explicit? Um, I've heard some readers who felt that way because I'm known for writing, I write closed door romance. Um, Mm -hmm. And that's how I refer to it. I hear some people call it clean. A lot of people call it clean, which is not how I would refer to it at all. Um, Just there's no sex scenes on the page Um, that they would wish there was some way that they could be a hundred percent clear what heat level they were getting. And it's harder to tell sometimes um, with some covers than others. Um, and I'm not really sure how to go about that, you know, except for almost like a reverse content warning. <laughs> like this is not going to have as much explicitness. <laughs> Since starting the podcast, it's weird because a lot of the authors that we talk to don't read as much as they used to because they spend so much time writing right. and also like promoting and, you know, all the other stuff that goes along with publishing a book. Um, whereas I feel like I spend like too, too much time reading because we have to read a certain amount of books like for our review episodes. And then when we interview authors, I, I want to read at least one book of the author. Typically I read the newest one or whatever. Like if it's a publisher sends a new book or, right, right. or if it's an indie author, usually they're promoting something. So they'll, you know, like send me an ARC of their newest book, but I like to read at least one. And then, and I do tend to find that I read perhaps too much. One might say <laughs> in the back. <laughs> Is that possible? I don't know. <laughs> Um, do you feel like your reading has like been able to maintain while you've been writing the probably the main difference is I don't get to read as much just for pure pleasure like that I choose the books because I get sent so many books for endorsement um and so those sort of get bumped to the top of the queue and most of them I love. So it ends up working out, but it's almost like you're reading books someone else has chosen for you versus you're like just free range <laughs> out there choosing yeah. whatever takes your interest. The other thing that I find is like, I don't know if other readers do this. I think they do is when things get really tense with work or stress to decompress, I find myself just rereading old favorites rather than mm-hmm. reading something new and not even the whole book. Sometimes I'll just go back to like a Lisa Kleypas or something and read a favorite scene. Um, like, Oh, I'll want to see this or from this old book, some, you know, some favorite scene that happened or the end of the book or whatever. So I, I'll do that a lot um, rather than just be like, I'm going to pick up something new. So in addition to, to reading a bunch of books for endorsement, that's what I seem to, be doing like the other day I went back and I just was rereading a Georgette Hayer just a couple scenes from a Georgette Hayer and then I 
I kept reading past the scene and finally I had to tell myself like, and it's a book I've read like four times, but just stop and you have yeah. to go back to work. <laughs> stop monkey. You know how it ends. Write something. Exactly. <laughs> um, okay. So I would love to talk about the endorsements thing because we haven't, I don't think we've talked about that with any other authors. So oh. when you're talking about endorsements, you're saying that people send you their books so that you'll write like a blurb that might appear in their marketing or on the back of their book. Right. So generally, um, once in a while, a a publisher or an author reach out to to me directly. And then other times they'll, um, it'll come through my agent or through my editor at the publisher of somebody, you know, asking to see, and usually it's more phrase, you know, would you like to read this? And we'd love, you know, an endorsement from you if you enjoy it. It's not like, regardless, you endorse it if you hate it. Um, It's Mm -hmm. always just if you like it and if you have time. Um, And so that's usually how it happens. And if I read a book and I enjoy it, um, then I write a few sentences and send it back. And if they like my endorsement, um, then they will use it. Sometimes it goes on the cover of a book or on the inside flap or on the back cover um, or just generally in their marketing. Obviously it's kind of like a, a quid pro quo because uh, you know, I got your marketing stuff and I have your books and they have quotes um, from other authors in them. Um, but also it's, uh, it's kind of an interesting cause occasionally I'll look at a book and I'll see an author I really like. And I'm like, well, if Mimi Matthews likes it, then probably I'm going <laughs> to like it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like occasionally I'll see, Oh, like interesting. It's almost like a little marketing for yourself too. Well, right. I think it's, it can be true if you see an author endorsing a certain book because most authors, at least I feel this way. And I know that a lot of my friends feel this way is they don't lend their book to something they don't genuinely like. But the other thing is an editor or an agent would not approach that particular author asking for an endorsement for their author's book, unless there was some similarity in the genre or the style or some similar audience appeal. Um, It's sort of like, you know, if you're a romance author, you wouldn't want um, an author who writes something totally different, totally different style endorsing your book because they're sort of helping to bring their readers to your book. And if their readers expect something totally different, they're not going to be happy with your book. Um, so I think there is sort of a matching, if that makes sense, I may not be explaining it. Yeah. Correctly. Well, we I saw, mean, we um, chatted with Evie Dunmore last year. Oh, I love year. Evie. Yeah. Maybe it was, yeah, maybe it's the year before now. I don't even know. Um, yeah, she was wonderful. Um, and I saw she like endorsed one of your books and I was like, Evie, well, if Evie likes it. <laughs> and it makes sense because she also writes like historical romance. She also writes books that are like a little bit more of a feminist twist on, you know, right. figuring out how her characters are going to end up with their people. They're not all like the, you know, classic historical like wallflower meets duke you know right right falls in love i knew evie gosh before her debut came out actually um it's been a while so i had a popular indie series um parish orphans of devon and i think the first book had already come out the matrimonial advertisement and evie had written a review of it or i can't remember how it happened but we end up talking with each other and it was right when bringing down the Duke was getting ready to come out. And then I read her book and loved it, of course. Um, and so that's how I knew her. And, and we're both with Berkeley now and we actually have the same editor. Um, oh, cool. But yeah, I love her books. I love that style of um, 
like real history in a story and not so much that it makes it into a history book or a nonfiction book, but that it's layered in in such a way that as you're reading, it just gives like a certain richness to the story, which I really appreciate. Um, and especially when it's dealing with issues, um, especially feminist issues that I feel like are still very relatable today um, in our, own, yeah, the struggle continues, but yeah, um, I, I love that about her stories. Yeah, same. She was, she actually won our, we do a little awards at the end of the year and she won our favorite book of, I believe it was our last year season, but it could have been the year before. Time is, I'm I know. pretty sure it was last year. So. <laughs> Time is Time is going so fast. These. It is crazy. Doesn't it feel like it's still the couple months when we first went into lockdown all the all the time in between has just zipped by it's gone so fast yeah i i don't know where where you live or where you were quarantining but i was living in la at the time i'm in california too okay yeah so it was like a very shocking like sunday like we went to the grocery store life was fairly normal monday morning legitimately everything in la was closed like kids yeah. aren't going to school husband's not going to the office like i'm in the san francisco bay area and i think we were oh, the yeah. first county oh. to lock down and yeah. one minute it was like we were just in the house and then it was like oh all these basketball the basketball season is canceled I remember that's the first thing I read. And I thought, oh, no, it must be really serious. They're canceling a sports season. And then the next thing we got this letter from the county saying, and I think they called it a shelter in place order. Mm-hmm. And it was really scary just because up until that point, we didn't have a, a an appreciation of just how serious it was. But that was, yeah. It was very scary times. And, you know, funnily enough, like we had started our podcast that previous fall. So 2019 fall. And we had like, like a lot of people, and I'm sure like you, plans to go promote our podcast and go to like conventions and meet readers and do mean greets. How did your, like, were you someone who went to a few conventions a year to do book nope, signings nope. or never? Um, no, um, because of my neck injury. Can't travel. Okay. Um, can't on. fly. I The last time I was on a plane was literally it was right before the fusion broke. I went to Hawaii. Um, and I remember even then, because I had already had the first surgery, my neck was like really painful, but yeah, I have not flown since and super long car rides not happening. So I didn't, I don't anticipate that I probably will ever go. I hate to say that. That sounds like I'm just just such a hermit, but it's just hard. It's just really hard. And so I'm not sure if the benefit of doing it would outweigh the negative, you know, physical sure. repercussions of doing it. But yeah. So the, have you then been able to do more events than you would just because people like at bookstores were doing digital events and having people come on like zooms or podcasts and things? I'm not generally available to do stuff. I'm literally a hermit. I, I decline a bunch of stuff. Um, so like I did, I did, um, mostly like podcast interviews when siren of sussex came out last year mm-hmm. last year god no it was this year oh my gosh it was January. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but i've seen like last year in the lead up to it i did podcast interviews and then then i had to cancel some too because it's um, actually very sad my dad passed away in december and oh, so a lot of the thank you a lot of the um things that i had planned um 
had to be canceled because um, it just, it's not that it was so sudden we weren't totally expecting it. He was in hospice, but we thought he had a little more time. So it happened. Mm -hmm. It still felt very sudden. Um, And so I just sort of had to back away from all things for a while. And everybody was so supportive. My publisher was so supportive. And, um, but yeah, um, so I didn't do as much as probably I could have. And I see other authors doing such amazing things. And sometimes I feel like it makes me seem like I am not willing to participate in anything, mainly because that's true. I'm not willing to participate in anything. <laughs> no, it's just because I, it's like I'm, I'm unpredictable and I'd rather not. I don't mean I'm unpredictable. I mean, my neck injury is unpredictable. I'm crazy. Um, just, <laughs> but just like um, I hate to commit to things only then to have to flake out at the last minute yeah. because I'm flared up or because something's going on with my neck and I'm mm-hmm. got to take a few days off. And so generally I find it's easier to only, you know, agree to do things pretty sparingly, unfortunately. Yeah. I also think though, there's something to be said. First of all, you have to like take care of your physical well-being and your, your body. Cause you know, you can't write any more books if you exactly you know, yeah injure yourself to the point where you're just yeah. like, can't do anything. Um, but also, um, you know, there's, there's like a give and take of like, okay, the more events you do, the less writing you can do, you know, like, so I I think especially, um, you know, like when you have something that's chronic, like you really do have to like, not like in a way, like divorce yourself from like a people pleasing. Cause I know it's so hard to say no to like, it it really is. It really is. You, and you feel really bad and then you feel guilty because you feel like, well, maybe I should be, doing more things to promote, like maybe I'm not doing enough to promote things to sell, to sell these books. But I think for other authors who have any sort of disability or chronic pain that I think they might feel the same way is that the writing is the most important thing. And I think that's probably what readers want more from us is the, the books and not so much, you know, more other events. Like if it's a toss up between it, events and actual books they probably prefer the books <laughs> so the more you can prioritize your actual writing is probably better um you know just because i actually i think that there's probably a lot of authors who who are dealing with physical issues um and having to balance those sort of things you know of, of how much mm-hmm. they can actually do um you know, public events or interviews and things and, and how much they can write because there's just a limited amount of physical resources, you know, you have that you can afford to expend. Are there any like, uh, like aids of things that you've needed to use? Like, I don't know, like in my mind, I'm feeling like I would want to like lay there and just like talk the story out and have it magically (laughs) type. I actually, I got the dragon software, the, the, is it, dictation mm-hmm. is that what they just call yeah. it dictation software um last year and i've just i tried to use it a few times and i find that my it's almost like my imagination goes more through my fingers to the keyboard and when i try to make it so that i'm just talking it i can't get it to work the same way and i've heard other authors say that you just have to practice it that the more you practice it that you'll get better at it and i do not have the patience to practice it and i keep thinking i'll have more time but I am so overextended 
But yeah, mm-hmm. definitely my creativity seems to go from head to fingers to keyboard. And like the way that I see things appearing as I type them is more of a representation of what's in my head than um, the audio part. I know, but I, I wish there was actually there a way to just download your brain's contents into a Word doc. God. Why, why doesn't somebody invent that? <laughs> it's coming. It's coming. I would 100% sign up for that because there's just like so much pinging around up here. If I could just right. like offload a little bit. Exactly. Time. Exactly. <laughs> that would be great. Just like- back it up onto the cloud. <laughs> So like you, I mean, like we just said, Simon of Sussex, um, which was book one in this series that the second one is about to come out is, was January, it's October. How often are you trying to release a book? For my books with Berkeley, it's totally based on their schedule. So the first two, though, they came out in the same year. The next one, book three is not coming out till January of 2024. So there's a little bit more than a year. And then I believe that the fourth book in the series will be like autumn of 2024. Um, So with them, it's like, it's roughly, I would say about a book a year, roughly. Um, And then what I'm hoping to do is still be able to put out an indie or two shortish indies per year. I haven't been able to do it so far um, just because of contractual things and how it works with my, um, with my other books coming out with their schedule, but I am going to be able to put out two indies in 2023 to sort of make up for the fact that I won't have another book that year. Um, But yeah, about once a year, generally in the past though, for my indies, I was able to do two books in a novella per year. And a lot of that was because I had some backlog of manuscripts um, sitting around that only needed to be revised. Um, But now I only have a few in my backlog, so I've got to write some from scratch. So you have the same editor for Berkeley. For your indies, do you try to work with the same editors for your indie books? Oh, it's all all the same. It's all the same editor. I use the exact same editor for all my indies. Um, I'm... I, I think that once you find an editor who really gets your voice and understands sort of your style and the, the way that you tell a story and that they have a sort of complimentary vibe um, that you, it's good to stick with them because I don't know. I just think you have to be careful who you trust your work with because there, there are, whether it's an editor or a beta reader or a critique partner, or whatever, if they're not looking at things in a similar way as you are, the changes they try to impose on your story aren't just changes that make it better, but like literally alter it in a way that it's just not what you're going for anymore. Anyway, that's probably a convoluted way of, of saying, yes, I work with the same editor who I just feel like she really, she really gets, my stories. And so her edits, um, don't affect my voice at all and just make things better as, as opposed to altering them into something that they're not. Mm -hmm. That makes complete sense because the, I feel like the tone and the voice of a romance novel, like carrying throughout is, is like what you fall in love with. It's like, right, the two right. characters. and if you yeah. are like, yeah, but what if they didn't go to the countryside and yeah. what if they stayed <laughs> in London and you're like, no, they can't. <laughs> it doesn't make sense. Yeah. Um, 
So I want to talk really quickly about your latest book, The Bell of Belgrade Square. First of all, I love a good Beauty and the Beast, uh, like reimagining or sort of, I don't know what you would call it, like the framework of that, almost right, as right. a pro put on top of a book. And when I tell you when he was like, come with me, let me show you this room. I was like, it's a library. It's a library. It's got a library. <laughs> I know. That's my, my nod to Beauty and the Beast. <laughs> I was like, oh my God, we're all such suckers for a library. Like that is like literally. The way a to book a book lover's dream. heart. I know. Isn't that the dream? Like you have a house and one of the rooms is just this huge library and every book you could imagine and the book smell and you can go in mm-hmm. there and you can just sit and there's comfortable chairs. And like, I'm in this case, a rich lady cause she's rich. And then someone ha- comes in and brings me my tea and scones and crackers. Or I whatever. know. Wouldn't that be <laughs> great? A little peckish midday. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. I would I was, love that. I was laughing at historicals one like the characters are like, oh, I usually get up at half past 10. And then I'm like, man, super, super rich people really had a, I mean, they had, they had downsides, but they did have a lot of creature comforts back in those days. I know, I know. That would be the way to go, to go back in time is if you could be rich. Whenever anybody always is like, and would you want to live in the Victorian era? It's like, you know, legitimately, if I live there, I'd probably be one of the servants. So no, I would not (laughs) want to be maybe like if you were really well off but the lack of plumbing and lack of vaccinations and yes yeah definite downside like if i lived in like a 50 room country estate with 50 servants maybe uh, yeah maybe (laughs) and i always joke because i have little kids that like it would be nice if i had a live-in like nanny and a a living nursery (laughs) wing like yeah you see your kids briefly at breakfast briefly at lunch maybe for like a quick walk around outside but all the negative stuff is like the the nursery maid (laughs) yeah exactly oh the baby's crying take her away from me like I wouldn't actually do that. I'd comfort them, but in my dreams, some days yeah, I'm like, Ooh, the dream is nice very nice. <laughs> <laughs> Someone else did all this crap for me. <laughs> Dear romance besties, if you want to support the show, head over to patreon.com forward slash romance at a glance to check out our awesome perks, including stickers, watching movies with us, naughty book boxes, and you can even be on the show. Can't be a patron? You can still support the show by purchasing books or things we recommend through our affiliate links on our show notes and our dope-ass website. Thanks for the commish. Or you can leave a review for the show on Apple Podcasts. Screenshot your review, send it to us on Instagram, and we'll send you some stickers. Both of your books have like a... An element of... Or not an element, I guess a plot point of the class... Um, the class divide between the two main characters Um, when you're writing like how do you put enough of that in to make it sort of believable in terms of like the actual consequences of being with someone not of your class but also not make it the focal point of the book I think it's a little bit tricky In the Siren of Sussex, it wasn't only cross-class, it was also a mixed-race couple. And Mm -hmm. there definitely, in the time period, would have been consequences for, you know, sort of like leaving the sphere you're born in and casting your lot with somebody who's from a totally different class or from, you know, a different race. It means that you're sort of alienating yourself from your group, unless your group is enlightened enough 
to sort of come with you or accept you. And a lot of times they were not that enlightened. And I think one of the ways that you could sort of temper the, the grittiness of that for a romance novel is just that you do have uh, a heroine or a hero who's surrounded with friends or family members, maybe not all of them, but some of them who are actually genuinely supportive of their choices or who are, you know, have at least that grain of enlightenment to be able to accept somebody who's different, who's a working class person or who is of a different culture or race. Um, as opposed to just keeping it totally grim, like you've married a tradesman, you're dead to us, you know, <laughs> and then how somebody who marries a tradesman and is totally alienated from their friends and family. Um, and definitely in the Bells of London series, the, the four young ladies, the Bells, they are very supportive of each other. And they do have other people in their community who are supportive, who are thoughtful and who aren't just, you know, some, totally um, bigoted sort of Victorian caricature who's, you know, unwilling to cross class lines, um, which I think helps to make it a little bit um, more palatable and not as jarring or upsetting to read somebody breaking free of their class. At least I hope. I hope not. No, I think I think you nailed it. I really liked that book. The I liked I personally like to like, it gives me that feeling of like, uh, like my heart hurts. Cause I'm like, they love them no matter what do they have the consequences? Yeah, you know what I mean? Right. Like, right. Such a good feeling in romance. I do. Yeah. I love that people are willing to sacrifice some things for the person they love. And, you know, sometimes that is their, their place in society, you know, as, you know, a gentlewoman or the daughter of, you know, an Earl or whatever, um, and go with a man who's in a different sphere and their love is enough, their love and their friends and the few family members, you know, who are willing to support them. Um, and a lot of times I think, and I think this happens in real life too, when you're breaking free of some old, uh, group, uh, or some old, you know, whatever to make a change in your life, whether you're, um, whether for love or for a job or whatever, that sometimes the change, even though it can be scary, even though it means breaking with part of your old life, the change can end up being more wonderful and open just such a new part of life to you more than you ever expected. And I feel like that that's sort of like the true happily ever after is that you, you don't just make a change that you do change and your world changes too and becomes like more vivid and just more wonderful. Um, and that's the part of it that I like. Um, so it may start in the beginning, like some catastrophe. Oh no, I have to leave my family. I have to lose my money. I have to, you know, like there's some catastrophe generally as the catalyst, but the change ends up being really wonderful in the end. The last thing I want to touch on is just the craziness of, bloodletting so like oh, the main gosh. character and and julia like basically has severe social anxiety um and so she says that she's ill and she has these like like parents who constantly are like oh i'm dying i'm dying i'm dying like they're the hypochondriacs yes hypochondriacs like live in this dark house like 
never open the window. So I'm like, well, that's why you're not feeling good. That's exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, and sometimes she says, oh, I'm sick too, just so she can get out of like going to balls <laughs> or social engagements, <clears throat> which I think like the idea of like taking to bed just on a day, just being like, you know what? I'm going to take to bed today and just like, <laughs> just read a book, just read a romance. I'm just exactly. Not, yeah. I, I don't want to do idea. it. It's going to be too stressful. Yeah. I find that very yeah. uh, personally relatable. Yeah, I'm like, I'm going to start using that. Like, when I'm just like, you know what? I'm going to take to bed today, everyone. Exactly. <laughs> you yeah. join I, don't me feel, like, I don't feel so great. <laughs> just take it to bed. Um, but the doctor comes and he does the, he like basically like cuts her to bleed her because they used to believe that that was helpful. And that to me, like, obviously I have the benefit of modern, you know, thinking and medicine and research and stuff. But even to me, I'm like, but you need your blood to survive. That seems so counter like intuitive to me. It does. It does. And they used it for so many things. And it wasn't until later in the 1860s and on into the 19th century when it started to fall from favor. So it was sort of an old standby medical treatment for a very long time, whether with leeches or, you know, with like a scalpel or this, what happens to Julia, the scarificator, which is like a little machine of blades. Um, I think, you know, one of the things, so in Bell, a lot of the story, though it has Beauty and the Beast themes, is sort of my play on Victorian sensation novels, which were really popular in the 1860s. And they're sort of like a cousin to Gothic novels, but where Gothic novels also have sort of a supernatural element, sensation novels didn't. They were more drawn from, from real life and, and the things that people feared in real life. And one of those things was a loss of bodily autonomy. Um, which is why in sensation novels, you see a lot of people being involuntarily committed to insane asylums and things like that. And part of Julia's treatment, you know, quote unquote treatment by the doctor um, plays into that whole sensation novel fear of um, losing your bodily autonomy to not being able to say, I don't want this to happen to, to me, you know, because that was such a real fear, which I also feel is such a relatable fear today, loss of bodily autonomy. I mean, who among us is not currently worrying about that? But the doctor coming to do that wasn't just sort of like a wrongheaded, um, backward sort of thing, which is alarming to us nowadays. Because as you say, like, well, what kind of solution is that when somebody's not feeling good to make them feel even worse? Um, but just, you know, it had to be something really bad for somebody as shy and insecure as Julia to have the courage to instigate the change. She, I don't want to spoil the story, but who in, to, to take the leap to instigate a big change, sure. like to realize I'm not, I'm actually legitimately not safe here. And I don't mm -hmm. want to be here. This is not, I thought I was safe. You know, if I stayed in my room, but I just need to right. get out of here. I need to do something drastic. Yeah. And like realizing that, your like I feel like uh it takes a lot for a character who like you said is like shy and stays at home and like her parents like on purpose keep her very sheltered and near right. they like to keep her close yeah and to to like finally like it's bad like there has to be something like you said so bad that like the slap in the face of oh they're really not on my side because I right. think right as a kid you like 
always assume your parents are on your side no matter what. Right. And a lot of times it takes that like momentous, like, oh shit, no, okay. No, they're not. Wow, yeah. I better get the fuck out of here. Ex- like, yeah, is- that's exactly <laughs> it. And, you know, it does take a jolt like that for Julia to feel like she has to take her future in her own hands. Like she has to yeah. make a change. Um, yeah. Which I felt like in a lot of ways, in the end, though, there are elements of Jasper Blunt, Captain Blunt rescuing her, that it was really Mm -hmm. her who rescued herself um, because Mm -hmm. she's the one who makes the move. Um, And in the end, it ends up being for the better. But it was really scary for her, but not as scary as having somebody bleed you to death. <laughs> right, exactly. Oh, we might call him and bring him back for a third round. And yeah, it's like, it's like well, no, it's not th- any no blood thanks. <laughs> <laughs> that seems like a bad idea. Um, yeah. Well, Mimi, this has been a delight. Thank you so much for saying yes to our podcast. Oh, it's been so much fun. I've been so happy to talk to you and um, so glad that uh, you had a chance to read Belle and love the beauty and the beast theme i hope other people will love it too i do i feel like they will i mean it's such a popular like i know for sure we've had listeners who are like oh yeah i search out that because i i just like that that trope yeah it's so much fun it's so much fun yeah me too me too definitely well dear listeners you can check out mimi matthews books all over the internet we'll make sure we drop links to the bell of belgrave square and all of her other books in the description below on whatever podcasting app you're on And until next time, may your books be your lover and your hand your best friend. Bye for now, kids. Thanks for hanging in with us, romance readers. Head over to Instagram to continue chatting with us. We're super friendly. We want to cackle with you. We want to know what your favorite sex scene was. And we need more book recommendations. If you want to read along with us, go to our website, romanceataglance.com, to see what we're reading next. And we'll see you next podcast.